Malika. Hey, Chris. Good to see you. Likewise. How are you? I am great. How are you? I am also great. Excellent. Love am to I, hear it. Now the question is, am I lying or not? <laughs> or am I honest? Now you tell me. What? How do I look? I feel shiny. I feel like I'm having a good hair day. Yeah. Yeah. I'll say great. Feel, you know what? Not shiny. You're glowing. I'm glowing. You're you know glowing. why? Turns out I was why? operating on an upper respiratory infection all last week. So Yikes. like every time I get this, like I, I, I was having this experience. I'm like, I know I didn't smoke crack. So this like sheen of sweat and this like pounding of my heart must have some other metabolic explanation. But I would just write it and I'd go teach class and I'd be like, Whoa! And then I come out of class and I'd be like, oh my God, I'm going to die. Yeah. Yeah. I am. Um, I, I am someone who, as someone who is a stress researcher, I like collecting lots of biometrics on myself. <laughs> so I have, I have a Garmin watch. I have a aura ring, like I'm a real tech bro. Uh, and I have been monitoring my own heart rate and skin temperature and sleep quality and heart rate variability. And I, I think I might have been sick last week. I was like, something is clearly wrong because my heart rate is all over the place. I haven't been sleeping well. And I've just been analyzing my own biometrics. But who knows? Who knows? That, that's How, cool. Was I just stressing myself out? Was I creating my own psychosomatic stress disorder by monitoring all of my own outputs? Maybe. How how restful is your sleep when you can when you can monitor it constantly in real time? So now that I have an Apple Watch, which does not have a long enough battery to leave on all night, yes. I am no longer monitoring my sleep. But Dave Sampson, sleep researcher Dave Sampson, when we interviewed him a few years ago, is the first one to tell me about that ring. Yeah. What's it the called again? An aura? An aura ring. O-U-R-A. I actually I got this for free because I was myself in a research study and I was monitoring my sleep and they were trying to test to see if it was a good measure or not. It's, I like it because it's very pretty. The listeners cannot see this, but the aura ring comes in lots of different colors and it looks like a real gold, gold ring. So it matches my vibe. It matches my bling. And so I like it and I get data on myself also. Okay. So do they have silver? Cause I'm not a gold person. I don't do like gold. Okay, good. They do have silver and they have black if you Ooh. want to like look really cool. Mm. Yeah. See, even my wedding ring is white gold. I, I'm all silver all the time. Okay. Yeah, you gotta you gotta pick so, a vibe and go with it. It is, it's true. I haven't changed my fashion since nineteen eighty. That's one of those things. <laughs> By which I, I mean it. I'm not that old. But the point being, once you get a look ride that shit till into the grave that's why old people look constantly out of fashion because they were hip as hell 20 years ago you know what fashion is cyclical it comes back into play that's right so just live long in, enough in in uh, 20 years my aura ring is going to be very unfashionable but then in 50 years it's going to be super fashionable again so well and will it work still then that is a great question but i mm. think that this is a perfect segue to who we're talking to today yeah. looking at chronic stress and minimally invasive means of measuring exactly holy shit i didn't even plan that who are we talking to <laughs> today we're talking to jason decaro uh who is a professor of anthropology in your department he is in fact Very my exciting. the chair of my department and who i just uh i just just saw down the hall so yes 
I guess Excellent. I knew that. What you know, it sounds like your department there. You got a lot, of, a lot of really cool people. I'm excited that we've gotten to talk to so many of them. So when we started this podcast, uh, what four years ago, Karen? A part of what we did was we interviewed people all around us who, you know, we we were like, we have this forum. Let's promote our own program so we can get grad students into them. And I and I, we were very, very. Uh, direct about that. You know, we would be like, we're, we're interviewing lots of people, but it's easiest to start with the people around us because we know how to talk to them and we know that it'll be fun to talk to them on air. If you talk to people you don't know very well, it can be a little awkward. But then there are certain people who were obvious, like like Jason is, he's the former treasurer and secretary of the Human Biology Association. When we started this podcast, that was his job. We had to go to him for permission and funding and all the stuff. So he's been instrumental to this podcast and yet never been interviewed. I was just, it wasn't, it was nothing personal. I was just waiting for, well, okay. He, he's been chair of my department. He's been, uh, he's had a heavy service load. So that means yeah. you, you end up kind of slowing down a little bit in research and he hadn't had a piece hit AJHB and he hadn't seemed offended yet. So I've interviewed people who have we've hired since and because they published an AJHB and I'm always like, Jason, I'm sorry we haven't had you. He's like, oh, no worries. Not everyone really loves to get on the podcast and talk like you. <laughs> well, I'm very excited to have him here. He is uh, the director of the DEHB. His primary uh, areas of research interest concern the intersections of cognitive Eco-cultural, linguistic, and biological anthropology. So DEHB yes. stands for Developmental Ecology in Human Behavior Lab. That's his lab here on campus where okay. he's got all his shiny stuff. Excellent. It sounds wet like lab. a great lab. Yep. Great wet lab. He has a special focus on child development, stress, aging, and the embodiment of emotion through interaction. And we're interviewing him about an article that is in AJHB um, called Applying Minimally Invasive Biomarkers of Chronic Stress Across Complex Ecological Contexts. So hence our, our mention of biomarkers and studying stress. And just as a quick aside, right? So when I first started my job here in 2009, he had published a similar paper in AJHB on salivary alpha amylase use that was integral both to my dissertation work and to um, getting a job here. And one of the things that I remember when I read that is thinking, oh, there are methods out there that haven't really been field tested rigorously that we can put papers out about. And one of the things yeah. that I had an experience of that I'll sort of throw out there before we bring them in is in collecting saliva samples using the old salivette pieces of, they weren't cotton, they were synthetic, but they'd put them in their mouth under their tongue and then put them in, they would get lipstick on them, right? And I, and no one knew if the lipstick would contaminate and we never, we never field tested that. So like there are still tons of field sensitivities we don't really understand. We don't know if, if lipstick messes up a cortisol sample or or not so like so he had done a study of alpha amylase collecting saliva among faculty i think leaving it out for a few days to see how stable it was which was useful because um my participants would forget to refrigerate and leave their spit in the trunk of their car for a day 
really gross, but yep. stable. That's such great knowledge to know. In fact, this entire special issue, I think, is so exciting and valuable. And I'm sure I'm going to fangirl when we have Jason on here. But so much of this knowledge on biomarker collection is kind of informal knowledge that we as researchers know and share amongst each other. We have like, you know, professors to their graduate students, to their undergrads, to their, you know, anyone working in the lab, by the way, you should pay attention to this because this is going to be an issue. Make sure that you are getting your samples on ice immediately, or this hormone is actually pretty stable. You're, you're usually good for about a week, but just make sure you keep track of it. These are all things that are kind of in the informal network of training. And so to have all of this in a handbook, so you can actually look it up and be like, oh, this is the gold standard. This is what we should be looking for is so valuable. Ready to fangirl? Let's do it. Right on. Hello. Hi. Welcome to our podcast. Oh, hi. thank you so much. How are you? Good. You're awesome. Are you? All right. Well, this is a pleasure. The pleasure is all ours. And as you probably, uh, as I probably told you, this is the Sauce of Science with Kara and Chris. And yet we have Malika here. Kara is on sabbatical. Malika has been gracious enough to co-host. And I've invited her on. I'm going to embarrass her right now to fangirl. So go ahead. You start fangirl with. Yes. Gosh, I feel very excited about being able to come up with the questions for this paper because this paper is really cool. And I apologize in advance for being a huge fangirl about this. <laughs> I think that I remember when the contributed poster session at the mm -hmm. HBAs that this special issue came out of. I remember attending yeah. it. This was, I think, in Cleveland, like our last in-person. Yeah, it was. It was before the world shut down. It, yeah, it was the 2019 AAPAs, um, and uh, yep, Josh Nagras and uh, Gita Eek had had put this wonderful poster session together, and and as you say, this special issue was was the ultimate outcome of that. A couple of years later, after we got through the world shutting down on us, it, it was really exciting for me because you know I had never seen all of these different threads brought together before, before that 2019 session. You know, there were, there were so many different lines of research and brilliant researchers who were sort of pulling at different threads in terms of how can we take sometimes rather complex biomarker systems and apply them in a field-friendly way so that they could be used outside of basically laboratory-type experimentation in really wealthy places in the world and uh, to to see all of these different branches and and frankly people being you know very forthright both about the opportunities and the substantial remaining challenges that we end up with so before we go into the nuts and bolts or find out how the sausage is made in minimally invasive <laughs> biomarkers we always start off finding out more about the scientist and of course as as i said in the introduction You've been uh, involved as a as a as an officer with the Human Biology Association for years and years. You you gave us the literal permissions to start the podcast, but you've also been an administrator for many years. So I've given you space and not like pulled you in here after watching several members of our department come through. But we always want to know whatever period someone is in their career, how they got interested in anthropology, how this became a career option for them. So if you could tell us a, a bit about your background and sure, of course. Well, <clears throat> when I um when I sort of tell my scientific origin story, 
I, uh, I, I usually start early stage of uh, being an undergrad at Binghamton University. Um, I had arrived at Binghamton absolutely convinced. I'm, I'm still not sure that I can recall why I was convinced of this other than that I was, you know, 18. Um, and I was convinced that I was going to become an MD, PhD in, in biochemistry um, and, you know, do sort of a phys- become a physician researcher. Okay, so I did this biochemistry major and I actually ended up completing the biochemistry major. But over the course of time, as one does, I just happened to take an anthropology class. Um, you know, I see this still in the students that, you know, we th- see coming through the department here, that there's an awful lot of majors who end up stumbling upon anthropology. And that was absolutely me. So um, I ended up adding anthropology as a double major. And then around, around junior year, I had this massive crisis where I suddenly realized, and I had been doing like the right things. Like I'd been trained as an EMT and I joined an ambulance service, you know, and all these things. And I had this sudden sort of collapse one day in my room where I'm like, I do not want to be a physician. I don't want to go to medical school. What the heck do I do now? Right. So fortunately, by that point, you know, I was actually pretty well long in in taking anthropology classes. And I I gotten to know Mike Little, who's sort of a legendary human biologist. And I ended up going to his office because one of the things that was really striking to me is it's not that I didn't have an interest in in biology, that I didn't have an interest in in lab work at all. I still do lab work, right? You know, I um, through the Developmental College and Human Biology Lab here. Um, but I knew that I really wanted my work to first and foremost be around people, um, and that the biological questions I was interested in were in the service of understanding people with all of their messy complexity in a way that that we are really much more adept at in anthropology. Um, and so I went to Mike Little and I remember sitting down with him and telling him that um, I had really changed my direction and I thought I wanted to become, I didn't even know the words at the time, but basically what he was able to divine was I wanted to become an anthropological human biologist, right? And so I remember the first thing he says is, Oh, so you've decided to take a vow vow of poverty then, have you? (laughs) But um, he was really instrumental in sort of helping guide me in this switch. And then I ended up at Emory University at a time when Emory um, had really built a program around biocultural perspectives in anthropology and working with Carol Worthman as my advisor, um, who has this extraordinary ability to bridge concepts and uh, bridge bridge theory, bridge methods across disciplines and subdisciplines. And that was when I started to encounter these um, these uh, these questions related to the anthropology of human development that absolutely set me on fire and made me feel like this is something that I could do for the rest of my life. So what pushed you towards working in development and children and adolescents in particular? Well, you know, I think that um, one of the things that I find so exciting about looking at, at human development models through an anthropological lens is that I'm always intrigued by complex systems, complex changing systems, right? And how complex systems interact with one another. 
And you absolutely can do that kind of work without focusing on children and adolescents. I have more recently started to become engaged in work related to sort of developmental processes processes among older adults um, who are uh, experiencing osteoarthritis and sort of this question of what does healthy aging look like, right? And so I've never felt like in order to explore really fascinating questions about how individuals embedded within social and cultural systems change over time, that it's necessary to focus on, on childhood and adolescence. But there is just so much going on with kids, right? I mean, there's so much change. There's so much malleability. And we know over the time that I've been in the field, the evidence has just steadily accumulated about the ways that um, experiences in the early part of life can have these effects that reverberate throughout the lifespan. And so it has been a very, for me, a very rich area as we think about kids who are in the process of of, of enculturation, whose brains are changing at such a rapid pace, whose bodies are changing at such a rapid pace, who have so many different intersecting influences on who they are becoming over time, many of which are not the ones that we tend to pay the most attention to in popular culture. And this is not to minimize the importance of parents, to be clear, but there's a tendency, I think, in you know a lot of discourse that you'll hear say in media in the United States, to focus tremendously on what is the role of the parent and recognizing that when you really sort of dig into good developmental models um, for understanding what's going on with, uh, with kids, even at very early ages, that the, in, the entire social ecology is having an impact. And, you know, you can even see this in some of these um, population genetics work where the shared uh, environmental variance that has to do with, you know, the household that you live in, right, is actually not as important as that non-shared environmental influence that varies between kids who were in the same household and where I bet your par- their parents would swear they did exactly the same thing, right? Um, so I, I love that. I love that being able to piece together these different pieces of extremely complicated models. In, in a way that children and adolescents just provide fantastic opportunity for. Um, the article that we're talking about today, I'll, I'll repeat, is Applying Minimally Invasive Biomarkers of Chronic Stress Across Complex Ecological Contexts, which you wrote with our colleague, Courtney Helfrich, who we had on the podcast relatively recently. And so what I want to sort of say is in 2009, when I got hired, uh, you had just published in 2008 an article in AJHB on using, I believe, alpha amylase as a, mm-hmm. as a minimally invasive biomarker that I had used in my dissertation to guide me as a, as a method toward, toward something I didn't know about, how to do a test I did not know existed before. So that article was hugely influential to me. And so I'm wondering what this article does that is new, what you, mm-hmm. what role you see it for, say, uh, maybe the current graduate students, or, or what's, what's the goal in this article that may be similar to what, what I experienced? 
Sure. You know, so when you look at an article like this, all of this is a, bit, a difference between the one you're talking about in 2008 is that included some new empirical findings, right? There, there was original research that went into that in addition to literature review. And this is really a more straight review. What we really were trying to do here is to say, you know, we've got these methods that are out there, some of which have been out there for, for quite a while. Um, and that have been employed in, in, to, to varying degrees fairly extensively, at least if you look at, at science as a whole. So, you know, there hasn't been as much use of allostatic load in human biology as there has been in some other disciplines, but it's a, it's a very well-worn, in some respects, biomarker. And, and you know, goodness knows that um, we've been talking about cortisol for a long time. But I do think that there come these times when we have to sort of step back and take stock, including of biomarkers that we've been using to some extent or another for years, and say, what have we learned in the past decade, let's say, um, that may cause us to rethink how we incorporate biomarkers into larger research programs, right? And so that's primarily what this article is trying to do, is to help, say, the graduate student, hypothetical graduate student you're referring to, to think not just in terms of, well, I need a stress biomarker, and so I'm going to pick one out, but to really think deeply about how their entire research question needs to inform the biomarkers they're using, but also needs to be informed by what biomarkers can and can't do for you. And so how do you think that that concept can inform on something, like you said, that is a little bit more slippery? It's used in lots of different disciplines like allosotic load or something sure. that is as entrenched as cortisol sampling. How can sure. we then communicate that? Mm -hmm. As, as uh, many uh, listening may know, um, uh, uh, local biology is a concept which has... Um, uh, in many respects emerged from our colleagues in medical anthropology. Um, Margaret Block is particularly um, strongly associated, uh, of course, with, with her uh, co-authors and colleagues um, in developing the concept of local biologies. Um, and then more, somewhat more recently, um, we've begun to see human biologists um, taking this on and uh, looking at it as a kind of theoretical framework that can be used to deepen our appreciation for the relevance of context, right? And so um, it is an opportunity when we when we think about local biologies as an outcome of of uh, uh, macrostructural factors being embodied, um, and you know. In, in, Embodiment has a lot of different meanings, um, but for the purposes of this particular article and sort of thinking of it as human biologists, we can recognize specific measurable parameters um, that are uh, representative of a, of a certain type of embodiment of, um, of social structure and of culture. You know, one of the things that we emphasize in this article is that it's not just that you can take a biomarker that has a sort of generic significance, right, and use the concept of local biologies to explain why, let's say, you have more stress in one sample and less stress than in another, right? So the idea that political, economic, 
influences are important in shaping human biology. Back in 1998, when when Goodman and Leatherman published Building a New Biocultural Synthesis, you know, the the, the subtitle is is uh, what political economic perspectives on human biology, right? But I think one of the things that we tried to emphasize here is that this goes deep to the point that perhaps the ecological considerations, the structural considerations that are shaping human biology are doing so on such a fundamental level that a biomarker actually means something different in a different context, right? And I think that in a way is the take-home point, the most important take-home point for the particular use of local biology in this article is that you can have a scenario where higher cortisol does not equal higher stress, where higher EBV titers does not equal higher stress, right? Those kinds of scenarios can emerge, which causes us to step back and have to question our fundamental understanding of the biomarkers themselves as they apply across contexts, and not just say that we have a model that incorporates um, a political ecology from the standpoint of identifying someone as being more or less stressed, if that makes sense. Yeah, so just to get just to go a little bit deeper into the to to the weeds, I guess, mix our metaphors or the sausage or or whatever it is here. So when we're talking and 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 Karen and I talk about this uh, over the last several years as well, because she's studying a metabolically healthy fat, which to me is similar to discussing allostatic load, right? When we say stress, do we mean eustress, distress, or something general? When we say allostatic load versus allostatic overload, we're using um, indices and and sort of concepts that haven't always been defined as either a method or as a theory. And you're you're describing allostatic load and allostatic load indices here methodologically. So I wonder if you know what we're doing is adding granularity. We're adding context so that we can say this is a concept until we describe it in 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 this setting. And now we're showing you how it can be methodologically applied. So I wonder if you could just unpack allostatic load as a method a little bit and describe sure. how you mean it in that relativistic application. Sure, sure. So you know the the uh, the foundation conceptually of allostatic load is in in very brief is the idea that um, stress in the broadest sensible, in, in the broadest possible sense of the word, um, has multi-system effects, right? And so that we may, in some cases, be able through these multi-system indices to be able to, to pick up the, the markers of adversity in a way that any single measure that is a constituent element of it might not fully capture. And this, um, runs into a lot of of wrinkles when we try to figure out how to apply it. So others have talked about, you know, applying allostatic load indices across a wide variety of contexts with adults. Um, But we were really um, uh, focusing some attention on the idea that allostatic load is something that if it is going to be useful in, in earlier stages of development, and it, it should conceptually, it should be applicable to, the impact of adversity, even at quite a young age. And yet a lot of the classic constituents of an allostatic load index are assuming an impact of adversity over the course of decades, right? 
And so, you know, classically measures of, uh, of, of lipids um, and measures like hypertension and, and so on and so forth, where glucose dysregulation, um, which are in a sense risk factors for uh, the development of disease. Um, and uh, while you can have certainly glucose dysregulation um, in a, say, 10 year old, typically, for uh, the uh, accumulation of adversity over the lifespan that results in uh, glucose dysregulation, it's going to be later in life that you see these things. And so the first question that we were asking and is, um, what are the appropriate markers um, to use in this case uh, for someone who might be uh, certainly old enough that uh, we might be able to see implications in, say, uh, inflammatory markers uh, or other immune markers that we might be able to see in change in uh, perhaps um, growth patterns and, and so forth. Um, and so when you sort of pare it down to what are the basic elements that are needed in an allostatic load index, we argue that, you know, yes, you, you can find them, you can do them in a wide variety of contexts, but the, the trick becomes that because it then is a context-dependent measure in terms of what goes into it, even putting aside the differences um, that you might need to consider between uh, a 10-year-old being measured and a 40-year-old being measured, if I'm going to use a different set of measures, if I'm going to be doing, let's say, work in, in Nicaragua, versus work in Tuscaloosa, it takes away the ability to put those two allostatic load measures side by side and claim that they are directly comparable, right? So this is, this is one of those sort of methodological challenges, which has big implications for, for research question design, because you cannot do an easy comparison between an allostatic load measure that I would build for, you know, looking at, at uh, adults here and looking at adults in one of the field sites where I work with collaborators in rural Nicaragua, okay? So then another piece of that methodological puzzle is how do you actually put these together into a useful index? And we spend some time on that as well, arguing that, um, I mean, I don't think that in, in this article, we, we sort of come down on the side of saying there is one and only one good way to do it. Um, although I do think that, um, you know, there's a pretty good case to be made that if this is actually, that if we sort of think of allostatic load as being sort of akin to a latent variable, something that we sort of theorize that we know is out there, but we can't really directly measure. So we get at it by measuring a bunch of different things. Then there's a pretty decent argument to be made that we should actually use the statistics that are designed for identifying latent variables, which is factor analysis. Um, it's not beyond the capabilities um, of, of human biologists by any means to apply those kinds of, um, I, I hesitate to even say advanced statistics, but you know, just going one step further in the statistics so that we can talk about if this is a multi-system indicator of stress. Yeah, we should be able to see some kind of common, common variance. 
trying to out our not out ourselves to statisticians that this is not as high level as they <laughs> might consider, but for field field ready methodology. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have to remember we're in the field a lot of times with this stuff, and so I'm I'm really glad I'm really glad you decided to pick on allostatic load because I feel like it's one of those real contentious measures of chronic stress and just a variable in general that that comes under a lot of fire because mm -hmm. yeah, I struggle with it myself it is so specific to what group you're working with what context you're working with is it comparable to anything else will a reviewer know what you're talking about exactly or are they like you know what is this what is this mystery variable but there there are methods to take this mystery variable and turn it into something useful a lot of these ideas of chronic stress, the, the variables that you mentioned in the paper, whether it is something like allostatic load or uh, the various kinds of salivary analyses or, you know, fingernail or hair cortisol, these are all things that we as human biologists kind of come up against. We, you know, either we have done these kinds of measures or we know someone who's done these kinds of measures. What I'm seeing is a lot of these big scientific questions are turning into a big team format. So mm -hmm. I'm speaking from my own experience. I work in a medical school. I work in a clinical department. I am the only human biologist around. And oftentimes when I'm in conversations about study design, you know, there are these ideas of how we should be measuring stress, how we should be measuring chronic stress. Allostatic load comes up all the time because it's this magical kind of catch-all variable. <laughs> and as a human biologist, I'm like, okay, guys, there are rules on how we should be measuring this, how we should be approaching these different variables. One of the things that I think that this article, you and your co-author do a really fantastic job uh, talking about is these multiple contributors to, a, to mm -hmm. chronic stress, also multiple contributors to the biomarkers themselves. So it's not just the the stress, whatever that might mean, all the different things coming into it, but also like the biomarker itself has all of these, these things that are causing variants, correct? Mm -hmm. Thinking about how we as human biologists can translate, maybe right. communicate. I, I'm, I'm trying to think of the best word, but sharing our knowledge of this nuance to this mm -hmm. big format team. So something like allostatic load can be measured correctly and accurately, but we are then getting the expertise of a statistician who then knows exactly what they should be measuring when they are compiling this latent variable. What do you, mm -hmm. what do you think about that? Like, how do we do that kind of translation in a way that is useful and beneficial to this big team science format? Sure. I mean, I feel like in a lot of ways, that's the, that's a sort of special case of a common question that we encounter as as human biologists, as in, in, you know, in many cases, uh, you know, so many human biologists have an anthropology background. And, you know, one of the things that I've seen over time is I've done a lot of team work with, uh, you know, my, my current biggest project is the, the one related to osteoarthritis. And I'm the only anthropologist on the team. I'm the only human biologist on the team. It's a fabulous group of collaborators. I love working with them. Um, and with this project, as with certain others, what I have often found is that I end up coming into teams being seen as sort of a, a method specialist, right? Because there's some particular method that they, they know they would like to apply, 
and that I have expertise. And the funny thing is that I've gotten into each of these kind of projects as a method specialist for something different. <laughs> so if I'm a method specialist, I'm a pretty generalist method specialist, right? And so I always kind of have this idea of, you know, once I can sort of worm my way <laughs> into a collaboration, then the opportunity arises to you know, it, it, it requires a certain amount of diplomacy, it requires really good listening skills, and it requires being ready to understand what is important in these other disciplines that I'm working with, right? If I'm working with developmental and social psychologists, for example, you know, I can't just barge in there and feel like I have all the answers. There's, these are very well developed, and in many ways, very sophisticated, sometimes in different ways that anthropological human biology is sophisticated. And so I end up spending a lot of time listening. What I have found, though, is that once the relationships are built within the team, in my experience, you know, once it is clear that I'm bringing something of value, even if it's not the full range of what as an anthropological human biologist I may, may be able to bring to the conversation, and I'm listening, um, and I'm being a team player, which sometimes means allowing things to go forward that are not exactly the way that I would prefer. So there's always some amount of compromise, but I see that as compromise in the good sense of the word, right? Um, not compromised. There's some amount of compromise in that process that with, with good teams, there's often a, a lot of folks in other disciplines who have a sense that something is missing, right? Smart folks across disciplines and I, I have this sense all the time in my own work, right, that you, you know that there's something missing from your model, but you don't necessarily know how to deal with it. And so I have found, for example, that being able to contribute both, I mean, two things coming out of human bio, um, one of which is helping people conceptualize the implications of culture in their models, right? So I'm not a cultural anthropologist, but I am a biocultural anthropologist. And, and that is part of what I can contribute is it's, it's not that folks don't know that this stuff is important, but they don't necessarily have the tools to incorporate into their models. Okay. And similarly, the, the significance of being able to think in terms of evolution. And so in this article, the other thing that we do, and it's not primarily about this, but we periodically make note of the fact that these biomarkers have long evolutionary histories and they they did not develop for our convenience in being able to measure stress. And so having a sense going into a conversation that the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis has a deep evolutionary history among vertebrates, right? And that it is fundamentally there to regulate energy. And you know, having even if they are not going to directly incorporate life history theory into their models, having a sense of the way that life history trade-offs play into the way that different influences, different, different components of human ecology shape the responses of biomarkers in ways that may not be completely understandable or predictable for someone who's coming strictly from a traditional lab-based experimental, let's say, psychology um, type of approach. I, I tend to find that uh, as long as it's possible to be good listeners and, and communicate with the soft voice as a team member, that there is a lot of hunger for hearing those perspectives. Hmm. Um, 
Yeah. Well, I have, I have a follow-up question, if you don't mind, on that, and and it, it jumps out at me as as you're talking. It's a this is a hark, I'm gonna harken back to our academic series that we had a few years ago, which was hacks for succeeding in in academia. Right? We usually have guests on here whose research we're we're talking about their project, right? And you've you've right. just weaved through and alluded to a bunch of projects you're on. But one of the things that I have always admired about your work is you get brought in to be that human biology expert in a wide variety of projects. And I see that as a skill, right, where you get involved as a team member, become an instrumental member of, of a variety of different teams. And you haven't always been the PI who has initiated that. So I see that as something that's worth teaching. And I wonder if you could speak to how you have been involved, gotten yourself involved in so many projects and brought your expertise to bear. Because uh, I think that's an avenue a lot of our listeners would love to find themselves in is to is to make their skill set more widely useful and get involved in team-based work. How do you how do you speak with a soft voice but bring a big toolbox? <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, um, I mean, one thing that I have I really tried to do uh, throughout my career um, is to work outside of my comfort zone as much as possible. And that starts with doing a lot of broad reading and going to conferences, um, you know, fairly early on. I, I started branching out to attending attending conferences which are outside of um, anthropology as well as the, you know, the wonderful conferences we have ourselves developing both a general background knowledge of what's going on in a field and also connecting with folks at places like the Society for Research and Child Development and the, um, you know, connecting with the psychosomatic medicine folks. And more recently, you know, at, with this work that I'm doing now, I've started going to the Gerontological Society of America conference. You know, I never thought that I would end up there, right? I'm just, I absolutely love poster sessions because you talk with people <laughs> and it is amazing uh, the the kind of sharing of perspectives. And then the other thing um, which uh, has been a big part of this for me is looking around the university that I am in. I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate to be at fairly large university um, with a lot of really strong researchers across departments. And so in terms of then getting involved in specific concrete projects, rather than just sort of trying to immerse myself in interdisciplinarity, um, that has tended to come initially, even if it ends up sort of becoming a cross-institutional or, you know, even cross-national thing, um, it has uh, come through um, more often than not um, someone who is a faculty member in our, you know, in our nursing school or our school of, you know, it, or in the department of, of human nutrition or in the psychology department or the human development department, right? And um, networking within the university, it is amazing the extent to which at traditional universities we get siloed and how much opportunity arises from simply reaching out and getting to know folks who are doing interesting work in other departments. That's how I ended up in this work on healthy aging. It was because I connected with somebody who was preparing to write a grant proposal. And one of the pieces of this healthy aging research had to do with um, actigraphy, 
and I had I had done work with hectography, right? And so uh, sort of revolved around that particular skill. But I think that what really that what really solidified the collaboration was in the end, not that specific skill. It was being able to have really great conversations, being able to fully throw myself in engaging um, with this uh, PI um, or this soon to be PI of this project in a, you know, to, to show excitement and show what it is that my thoughts on this matter coming out of human biology could can contribute to the project. You know, as I become a more senior scholar, there's more opportunity for me to to be the one who does the outreach, right? But really, as an assistant professor, that's how it started. It all comes about down to human connection, after yeah. all. Absolutely. Yeah. So we are very short on time, but one of the things that we really love to do on this podcast is part of understanding the scientists behind the science is asking, what do you like to do for fun? Things that are stress reducing, I guess. <laughs> sure. Well, um, yeah, there's 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 a couple of main ones. Um, it, the uh, uh, especially ever since I became department chair, I realized that I needed something that I could use to turn my brain off at a certain point in the day. And so, with it, the number one is completely escapist fiction. I, I do my reading that makes me really think um, during the day, and at night I, I read things, some of which I would happily describe, some of which I probably would not admit to. Um, but there is, uh, I, I probably read more now than I have through most of my life, um, and that is truly wonderful. I also am a, a competitive fencer. I won't claim to be an extraordinarily good competitive fencer, but you don't really need to be to have fun doing it. Um, it gets me moving. You know, I actually had to. It was so sad during the pandemic because I would get these, like, memes would pop up on Facebook about fencing being the perfect, like, you know, pandemic game because if you get too close, you get stabbed. And yet the thing is, that's completely false. Unfortunately, <laughs> if you actually have ever done fencing, you know that you get really, really close to people all the time. Um, and you're like breathing heavily on them. And so there's nothing quite like having to wear a mask under your mask to, <laughs> to make an intense an aerobically intense activity, a little more difficult to do. But I'm I'm getting back into that as we as I sort of emerge from post pandemic um, uh, funk. Um, yep. You and your oldest were were fencing together. Uh, I remember uh, the childhood uh, photos on Facebook. So I'm glad to hear. It, are you still doing it with the children, or has it just become a dad thing? It, it's dad just thing now? it's just become a me thing now. <laughs> Although you know, one of my kids still does do some recreational fencing, but they're both off at college now. Yeah. Um, and so it's just sort of for me to do, which requires a little extra motivation since I no longer have a, you know, an excuse that to take me to Birmingham, um, which is that one of my kids needs to be there too. But it's, it's fun. It really is. And then, you know, the third thing is that we just got a puppy and Aww. it's a Chihuahua puppy, <gasps> which oh means God. that simultaneously, simultaneously, she is the most adorable little thing in the world and full of love and also a complete terror. Yeah. So <laughs> evil is coming to your life. Yes. 
<laughs> so, um, you know, that, that also kind of keeps me, keeps me and my wife busy with non-work stuff. And, and listeners should know that most of the science fiction fantasy that I have shared over the years, uh, Jason has told me about. So the whole, Mal- <laughs> the whole Malazan series was Greg Downey and Jason talking over dinner one night. And, and I oh, got yeah. so, 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 so what, what, uh, so let me ask you this, uh, as a parting shot, how, do, what do you think of the new wheel of time television series? Have you watched it? I have not watched it. And the thing is that, that, I never watch a television series until I've read the books, mm. if there are books, mm-hmm. and I've never read the Wheel of Time books because <laughs> I started them years ago, and I actually didn't like the first book, and I couldn't get through it. But I'm going to give it another try because people have told me I should. I had the same problem, and I watched the show, and apparently I watched the whole series once and didn't realize it because I went to watch it again, remembered none of it, rewatched the whole thing, <laughs> remembered bits and pieces of it, and when I finished, I told, I told Kara, it's like milk chocolate. Like, I like chocolate. Milk chocolate is like, it's kind of chocolate, but you know, I mean, it's still chocolate. So, <laughs> there you go. Exactly. You know, that's, that's what it's. Itch, if you will. Exactly. <laughs> so, anyway, I had, a, I had a reason I had brought it up last week. I have no reason to have brought it up to you other than I know you like fantasy science fiction. Jason, as always, total pleasure. Love talking to you in the hall. Love being a colleague with you. Thanks for finally being on the pod. It's this not awesome. because we don't like talking to you that it's been so long. <laughs> it's because you've been the chair and your job has been hell. And we are giving you a time before you had an article drop in HHB. And that is why I was uh, happy to be able to get you on the show. Um, so everybody check that article out. Um, is article. there a good way to get a hold of you if you would like to be got a hold of by listeners? Oh, absolutely. I would, uh, the easiest thing is to just shoot me an email. It's very simple. It's jason.a.decaro at ua.edu. Folks are welcome to reach out. I, I love talking about this stuff. Awesome. And liter- listeners can find out more about the Sausage of Science on the Human Biology Association website, which is in the middle of a migration. All of our episodes are on SoundCloud. You can stalk me and see me being funny on Twitter at Chris underscore L-Y. And you can find me also on Twitter at SkyMall. That's S-K-Y-Y underscore M-A-L. So please like us, troll us, do all the things. We love you. Thank you, Jason. And we'll be back next week. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.